0: Welcome back to the Heartland Pod. My name is Adam Summer, and I am your host. This is our usually Monday talking politics episode, uh, March thirteenth, two thousand twenty-three. I have a short introduction for you. I'll explain what the rest of the show is going to be, uh, and uh, just some other information. Uh, but it's not going to be our typical Monday show with the talk in politics. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the the last thirty days, uh, life has just really been sending about everything that we can handle uh, on a day-to-day basis we're doing fine we're gonna make it um, but uh, for those of you who uh, follow me uh, on social media stuff uh, or, or you know know me personally then you you know you then you know that we've had a, another uh, trip to the hospital for my daughter Clara um, and you can you can follow her story on Clara's crusade on Facebook uh, we've we've put that out there for many years and uh, anyway so she had her second trip to the hospital uh, in basically as many weeks and uh, had another bout of pneumonia and unrelated just kind of random thing separate lung Uh, so just sort of one of those one of those deals um, she hit the you know hit the pneumonia jackpot so to speak so uh, we were there twice Uh, my wife did all of the hospital stay this time and uh, you know Anybody who's ever stayed one night in the hospital knows what that means. Uh, to do multiples, uh, three nights this time, and uh, you know, it's it's hard to put it into words, right? It's it's a warrior kind of mentality uh, that you you know it's hard to hard to really reproduce the the kind of uh, you know feelings and, and gratitude from my end, and the feelings that I know that she has, and, and why she was there the whole time. Uh, so I held down the fort uh, back here at home with the other two. Uh, my parents came down and, and were huge helps. So, uh, we, you know, we just made a weekend out of it, you know, had fun with Nana and Papa and played some games and got silly and, you know, just tried to do that here and have that part going here. So it was just really hard to fit everything in from a scheduling standpoint with Sean and Rachel. Uh, you know, obviously this is not our job and this is – this is one of those times where that really comes to the forefront. Um, So if this is your first time listening to the Heartland pod um, and you're still (laughs) listening at this point, I'm sorry that I took this long to get to this part of it. But um, typically we talk about politics uh, in, in various forms, four or five topics on a Monday, some local stuff, some national stuff. And uh, you know, We do this uh, in our spare time, and when you're dealing with sick kids and everything else, spare time is just harder to find. So uh, we decided that it would be easier this week and just make more sense this week to pivot a little bit and to make sure that everybody is aware of what's going on in our podcast world because uh, the Dirt Road Democrat has been hitting Thursdays. It's been going now for uh, two months, and there's a bunch of really good episodes over there, and so I thought I would cherry pick some good stuff and put it into one episode here. So I'm gonna have uh, probably three interviews coming up here from different uh, episodes that Jess Piper has done over on the Dirt Road Democrat, and really just let you know let folks experience that all at once. Uh, it's a great way to share. Uh, kind of our universe by sharing this episode and saying, hey, here's, you know, here's what this really is about. So uh, it, it's just a, an excellent way to do that. Uh, quick break for you here, well, and then I'll get into my normal spiel. Just a reminder that together we bring topics of the week with a special focus on the Heartland as we bring our middle-out approach to politics and work to change the conversation. We bring you shows five days a week, including Fly Overview on Fridays with Kevin Smith, the Delta with Christina and Nicholas Linky, and High Country with Sean Diller every other Wednesday. And our newest show, Dirt Road Democrat, hosted by the one and only Jess Piper every Thursday. Mondays you get this talk in Politics show, and typically on Tuesdays, either an interview or a deep dive into something that's going on. Support what we do by leaving a rating and review on the podcast app of your choice. And please, the Apple users especially, take a moment and scroll down and take a look at that make sure you do it. You can follow us on social media with at the Heartland pod, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, we're out there. Support our work via Patreon as well by searching for the Heartland pod or simply going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the button to sign up there. Every level has some kind of perk, including now our special members only curated news feed over on our mighty network. It's our personal social network where you can interact with us and each other and get some of the stories that we think are most important. If you join us at Patreon, no matter the level, you will have access to that particular group. It's a great place to be. We look forward to you joining us. Head over to heartlandpod.com. Click the link to sign up for Patreon today or go to patreon.com and search for The Heartland Pod. heartlandpod.com backslash Patreon. Get signed up right now and help us change the conversation. So I do want to just touch base on a couple of things that are going on right now. Uh, if you didn't see, there's some serious issues financially happening. Uh, the basically the FTX fallout is continuing. We're seeing those chains uh, all kind of come to the end of the, <laughs> of the road, so to speak. The uh, you know you, I, I kind of picture a, a chain on a ship deck just going, shh, 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 you know, just kind of going out, 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 and then eventually it comes to the end. And what happens? You know, does it break? Does it hold? uh and some are breaking so uh not great uh not great uh the things that are happening with the banking right now but we'll see we'll see how it's handled um you know is are they able to isolate it that's really the, what the question comes down to are we just talking about kind of the crypto venture capital sector and so it's you know folks who were kind of pissing money down the train anyway on some of this stuff i mean there was some gambling happening let's be very frank there's some casino-like Uh, tendencies to this stuff, and that's what was going on. And, you know, when I place a sports bet in Kansas, because I can't do it in Missouri, thanks to any Hoskins, when I place a sports bet and I lose that sports bet, I don't get mad at the system, right? I made the wrong pick, and so I lost. That's what gambling is. Uh, So we'll see, though, uh, how all of this is handled. But I'm just, you know, keep an eye on it, because it's easy to get lost in the day-to-day shuffle. I'm, you know, coming out of a, a, a week where paying attention to the news was absolutely secondary to what was going on, but this story really grabbed my attention, along with uh, updates in Ukraine. We don't talk a lot about international politics and monetary issues and you know, economic issues, truly economics, on these shows. That's really not our thing. We're not experts in those. Um, you know, I, I have interest in politics in general, including international relations and how it all fits together, so uh, you know, I've certainly got some level of education there, but it's not my, it's not our specialty as a, as a crew. Uh, but reading the updates on Ukraine, you know, it, it doesn't really take an expert to kind of put two and two together and see that Russia has slowed. You know, what what looked like a, an invasion type attack, they've turned it into essentially a siege of an entire country. They're bombing uh, farm equipment. They're bombing grain silos, they're they're barming food infrastructure. Um they're they're trying to simultaneously destroy Ukraine's economy and starve them. That's that's a lot. It's very heavy. And I think we we have to take a real breath here because the culture war stuff has engulfed our domestic politics in a way that is just downright unhealthy um, for all of us. For all of us. It's it's unhealthy for our system of governance. It's unhealthy for our relationships towards one another. The stress that we feel, the undue stress that we feel about things that some of them are, are fake. Now, not everything in the, in the, you know, culture war heading is a fake issue. There's some very real issues. There's some very serious and real attacks coming from the right wing toward, uh, you know, LGBTQ plus folks who have every right to live, have every right to exist, have every right to do so free of the you know molestation and attacks of people who are you know close-minded and don't agree with their existence, not their lifestyle by the way lifestyle is the wrong word laid hey, number one lifestyle connotes some type of you know intentional choice to be something outside of the norm that's bullshit uh, but aside from that factor, Every single person deserves the same dignity of life, right? That's Isn't that part of the pro-life stance, I, I thought. At least that's how it's presented typically. So that part of it is very real. Um, but a lot of the other stuff is kind of knick-knacky. You know, it, it just isn't. It's not important. It's not big. It's not as big as it feels like sometimes. It's definitely not as big as Twitter makes it feel sometimes. So just take a second, take a step back look at the big picture, and try to see the forest here because uh, I think it's real easy right now to get focused on one tree. And, and maybe, by the way, maybe for your own safety or somebody else's safety, you have to. I get that. But if you can take a step back and look at the forest, it's a good time to do it. It's a good time to do it. All right, here are some Dirt Road Democrat selections. Uh, you can check the notes for the names and everything, uh, in the order that they're in, uh, I think you know if you haven't listened to the Dirt oh, Road Democrat, you're really going to enjoy these. If you have, you know it's nice to be refreshed on what we've had so far. And again, if you've got a friend that you've been telling them, hey, you should check this out. Here you go. They can get you know three interviews for the price of one. Uh, they check out this episode. Bam, there you go. You can even look. You don't have to tell me, but you can tell them the part where I stop talking and just starts. You don't even have to tell them about the other part. That's fine. That's fine. Just make sure they download it, subscribe, uh, and rate it five stars. And then we're even. We're totally cool at that point. All right. here's, uh, Here's Jess and her interviews. And now it's time for another episode of Dirt Row Democrat with your host Jessica Piper brought to you by the Heartland Pod.
1: Thank you everybody for joining us for another episode of the Dirt Road Democrat. I am so excited today. I am bringing you an expert on uh, the gun industry, actually. We've had a, a different show about gun violence in St. Louis, and we talked to an author from St. Louis um, about what was happening at Children's Hospital. Um, but today I'm talking with Ryan Busey, and he wrote a book called Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. And actually, Ryan sent me a copy of his book, and uh, it's good. It's good stuff, and I'm kind of picky about what I read. So welcome. It's so good to have you here today, Ryan.
2: Yeah, thank you, Jess, and thanks for the the work you're doing and leaning into making the world a better place and um, trying to get Democrats squared away on, the, on how we message. So I think that's all a valiant and worthy effort.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you. So, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Your background is absolutely fascinating.
2: Yeah, so I grew up on a farm and ranch in Western, Northwestern Kansas. Um, You know, I grew up with guns as a central part of my life, a good part of my life. I grew up hunting and fishing um, with my father, just like a lot of kids do uh, across the Midwest. And uh, many of the best times of my life were spent with guns you know hunting and shooting with my dad or my brother or my grandfather um when i got into college um you know i once famously quail hunted i think 50 days in a row 52 days in a row which i was very proud of. um mean, means i've had a lot of classes you know but uh um, yeah, you did <laughs> my, my bird dog lived in the dorm with me i smuggled him in there um and then after college i got into uh, i had a, a couple of jobs to start but i got into the firearms industry and became a sales executive at a small company which we made into one of the largest in the country and um, i was there for about 25 years and became very very troubled with the way that the firearms industry and sort of nra-ism became very central and required to the radicalization that we see on the right now and that you're you're fighting against so um yeah the book is about my fight inside the industry while I was there and my fight outside of it now. But I spent about uh, between 15 and 20 years inside the industry trying to keep it from becoming what it's become.
1: So I'm a gun owner. In fact, my only inheritance from my dad was guns. He handed down several guns. I was raised with them. But they didn't impact our day-to-day life. Um, I didn't use them as accessories. Neither did my dad or my grandparents. Um, They didn't carry them with them. And they didn't poke fun or mess with people um, who didn't own guns and claim that they were, you know, like unpatriotic. It's this weird notion that's going around right now that I've just noticed, you know, like you have in the last decade or so, it's really ramped up. Like, what is going on uh, with folks who, you know, own guns and think that others who don't are either less than or scared of them or uh, unpatriotic?
2: Well, there's a lot in that question. Um I I posit in the book and I believe this to be true that guns are sort of the center point, they're the pivot, they're the they are the heart of right-wing radicalization. Um they are now very symbolic. You know, if you look at January 6th, there were two types of flags. There were Trump, you know, political type flags. Um American flags, Trump flags, that kind of flag. And then the other type of flag was to come and get an AR-15 flags or just AR-15 sort of like it could have been anything, right? Could have been Chevy trucks, could have been Pepsi cans, could have been like a hundred yeah, barbecue grills. None of that. It was guns. Um, why is that? Well, two reasons, I think. Um, first off, the, the politics created in and around guns by the NRA and other groups really started this all or nothing religious type war you win it all or you lose it all um and now much of what you deal with i mean i i I know you're fighting the public school battle and um that too has become this religious all or nothing war it's not about um minor policy differences right it's not about well gosh maybe we should um pay our teachers this much or that much it's not it's not about any of that it's about dismantling the public schools because the public schools are now the enemy and we will dismantle them, and we will have private industry take over. And, you know, so it's this all or nothing. Well, that that started with guns, where that's why it's so important to the right to to have everybody believe that people like you and me want to take their guns, right? It's not about just background checks or reasonable policies. It has to be all or nothing. Um, secondarily, so it's, it's about that all or nothing religious-esque battle that's sort of almost a holy war, a jihad kind of thing that you fight, that every issue has been turned into that now. The second thing is, like, if you're going to start an authoritarian movement, what better to do it with than guns? I mean, that's the reason these people, um, you know, like like your buddy in the state legislature down there that um, posts his pictures with his 100-round AR-15, right? Nothing sends the signal of authoritarian power more than a guy standing there with a loaded gun. This is why terrorists use them. This is why political radicals use them. This, they they flash them around. They walk up and down the street with them. They put the pictures of them on their caps and their hats and their t-shirts and their bumpers and everything just to let you know that they're there and they have a tool that they can end your life with if you don't agree with them. Um, pretty scary stuff.
1: It really is. And uh, the guy you're referencing is Representative Ben Baker from Neosho, Missouri. He is in interesting character because he started out as a pastor and you can look back at the pictures of him when he was starting in politics and i mean he had on a cowboy hat but just you know a normal looking look like a pastor Mm -hmm. and then this radicalization of him um i guess feeding red meat to the base i'm not exactly sure but i mean he grew this beard that looks like wolverine and now he has these you know and, you know, big, scary guns, and he's posting pictures of them, and you you hit on it. It's why did this happen, and how did this happen? And do you see, because um, like I said, we, we've we always had guns in my home. Um, I see a lot of sexism, misogyny, um, you know, people who will assume that I obviously know nothing about a gun because of the way I look or because I'm a woman. Do you see any of that, um, or did you see any of that in the industry?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the industry is for all intents and purposes, a bunch of people that look like me, right? (laughs) Middle aged white dudes. Um, And sadly, a lot of them have turned to be very fragile, kind of authoritarian friendly middle aged white dudes, much, much like, um, much like Wolverine beard man there. Um, (laughs) And and, and, um, so yeah, misogyny is really at the heart of it. And, And you know i've written several articles about the way in which racism and misogyny is now woven through the marketing of the firearms industry um basically telling troubled young men that they can just be instant badasses they can solve all their problems all they got to do is is just be like the guys with the ar15s and then whoof you know boom they're they're real men immediately um again it it really isn't shocking to me that we have the sort of uh, mass shooting violence that we have largely propagated like I don't know if you've been watching the news but women ain't walking around shooting up schools, right? It doesn't happen. And
1: um, that's strange too because I've said several times that I own several guns. What what is the difference between? And and you may have a little bit of insight on this. Why why are women who have equal access to guns not doing the mass shootings?
2: Well, you know, there's probably lots of um psychological reasons and societal reasons for that. I I focus much of my work on the degree to which the firearms industry and the marketing propagated by the industry encourages this. I think a very, if if, there's lots of super illustrative examples, but in 2018, and you can, anybody listening, um, you might want to grab a pen or pencil and scribble this down, but just Google Spikes Tactical AR-15 ad. And this was a famous ad that was on the wall of the SHOT show, which is the, the one of the largest trade shows in the world. It's the firearms industry trade show. It's usually held in Las Vegas. So this huge ad, and it said, not today, Antifa. And it has these four heavily muscled dudes with their AR-15s. They got their back to the camera and they're staring down kind of this band of ruffians, right? It, like, and this is remember, this is before, this is two years before 2020, right? Antifa had not invaded um quote unquote invaded our our uh, country right like like Mm -hmm. we are led to believe it happened so this is very predictive but these guys had a particular look backwards ball caps t-shirts jeans AR-15s muscled up right they 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 look very and 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 it's kind of a drab military color that they had two years later we had a 19 year old kid named Kyle Rittenhouse who Mm -hmm. takes his AR-15 marches into the street in kenosha wisconsin for him in his mind he's going to play vigilante against um against antifa and what's he look like he's got jeans backwards ball cap drab t-shirt on ar-15 strapped over his back like he looks exactly like these dudes right and so you just cannot escape the degree and and i could go through a hundred of these examples where you have that sort of marketing. And then we have outcomes in society that are eerily similar to that sort of marketing. Um, and you just can't escape that.
1: And that, to me, um, is really eerie because that is the same exact um, caricature that my Missouri legislators are putting out. You saw the picture of the man, you know, uh, yeah. Representative Baker, who said he was going to, you know, shoot down the Chinese balloon, and he was just being funny, but he has you know that gun he has the baseball hat he has the drab shirt he has yep. the boots on yep. wow you yep. just described yep. the photo and if anybody hadn't seen it you just described it you started speaking of kyle rittenhouse you started um your book um at a black lives um, matter rally that's yes. that's how you opened your book how did that happen? And my gosh, that seems like a wild place for someone who had spent, you know, a couple of decades inside of the gun industry. Can you tell us about the rally and how that happened?
2: Well, I'm probably the only firearms executive that wakes up in the morning and listens to NPR. I'm probably <laughs> among the only firearms executives who attended um, Black Lives Matter rally. But it was here in Kalispell, Montana, which is, you know, demographically um it's very monolithic, right? It's mostly mostly white folks. Um, and uh, but but I, as I tell the story in the book, like we, it didn't seem controversial to me. I don't know what's all that controversial about standing up for people of color, um, especially after that jo- George Floyd travesty. Like, uh, and my wife and I just decided, look, we're just going down there with our kids, and our kids wanted to go. I mean, I you know I don't find anything controversial about it. But as you know, um, the book opens with my youngest son Badge being attacked. By one of these people who I call pejoratively a couch commando, an armed guy down there who starts screaming at him, poking him in the chest, and and Badges, you know, he's you know seventy five pounds soaking wet, and all he's doing is sitting there chanting with some high school kids. um Pretty, I mean, I don't mean to equate what's happened, to what happened to our family there, with in any way with, with what happens to people of color across the country on a daily basis, but it's pretty damn frightening um, for a father to see that and. Um, You know, and I I just looked around that crowd and thought, holy shit, um, my industry made these people like we marketed to them. We told them to be here to get their guns, to do their patriotic duty, to fight the to be ready to fight this bloody civil war. And here it is almost ready to break out like that was. That was pretty rough to
1: take. I attended a victim's rally in St. Joe, Missouri, and we had some of those men. I think they are they called Boogaloo? Is that how you pronounce it with the Hawaiian shirts? And that we had several of those people show up armed at a victim's rally march. Mm -hmm. And I I couldn't make any sense of that. And because of the lax laws of Missouri, there was in, you know, they were armed. They had their pistols um, open carry. Um, there was nothing, you know, that anyone can do about that because it's perfectly legal in Missouri. Um, have you seen that movement in your area? And what are the the gun laws like in Montana?
2: Uh, our gun laws are probably, although I haven't studied them state by state comparison, you know, point by point comparison, they're probably very close to what yours are. Um, have I seen those guys? Yes. Um, they call themselves the Boogaloo Boys. I've got lots of other names for them. All of, them, all of them have four letters in them that's that's that kind of not have any other words other than four letter words um and yes the hawaiian shirt is their is their shirt of choice they literally believe they're hoping for they believe that the that the society will be remade with a violent race war and so they're hoping to propagate that um of note um, as we talk about industry advertising one of the largest Um, firearms distributors um, in the country and firearms manufacturers in the country is is called Palmetto State Armory in South Carolina. And Palmetto State actually produced the Boogaloo AK-47 rifle. It's a Hawaiian themed AK-47 that they didn't, they wanted to be cute, right? Because these people like this are so cute and intelligent. So they didn't call it the Boogaloo rifle, they called it the Big Aloha rifle. Mm. Um, So it was just close enough to Boogaloo that, you know, that these geniuses could Uh, equate the two. So, but this, I mean, to have a violent extremist group um, that hopes for a violent race war and undoing American society, and then have the industry actually market a Hawaiian themed rifle directly to them. I don't know how much more direct
3: you can get.
1: I'm interviewing a lady named Jennifer Berkshire. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in educational policies.
3: Yeah. So um, well, you and I have something in common. I am from the heartland. Um, I grew up in the next state over. That would be Illinois. And I spent a lot of time in your home state of Missouri. And then I ended up on the East Coast. I married what's known out here as a mass hole.
1: <laughs> that cannot be a real term, Jennifer.
3: <laughs> you clearly have never been here. <laughs> So I, I really didn't know anything about public education, except that I had experienced a lot of it. I went to K-12 and then I went to college and grad school, always at, at at public institutions and then I ended up getting a job out here for the state one of the statewide teachers unions I edited their newspaper and it meant that I got to travel all around visiting schools and urban schools in particular and this was at a moment that you may remember it where education reform was really kind of a democratic thing yeah. and what what struck me is that when I listened to what they were saying, I heard an awful lot of conservative causes being proposed as the solutions to what was ailing our public schools. And this fascinated me. How did how did Democrats settle on these as the solutions? I wanted to know more. So I started digging around, asking questions, learning my history. And what I discovered was that you really didn't have to dig very far before you encountered some much older right-wing ideas that seem to lead us in a very radical direction.
1: What in the world is going on? What has happened? And as you're alluding to, it hasn't just happened. It's been happening. Can you tell us about that?
3: I think that that's such a good point that, you know, when we're when we talk about our public schools, we tend to think of them in a sort of bubble that, you know, somehow education is separate from everything else that's happening in the country, even though, you know, it's clearly like 90 percent of the kids attend public schools. It's the largest line item in every state budget. But what I noticed is as I started digging around was that this was actually a really old cause and that when you looked into what somebody like a Betsy DeVos was unhappy about, it wasn't just that she was unhappy. It was that her parents and the family she had married into, that they had basically been unhappy since the New Deal. Now, that's a really long time ago, but it represents the, the largest concerted effort in our country's. Uh, history to to redistribute wealth and strengthen the role of the government in order to shore up the safety net. And so the when you look at so many of the folks who are leading the charge today through their foundations, through their enormous web of interconnected organizations, you will often find some grudge that dates back to the New Deal. And they have been, you know, sort of chipping away ever since. And I think what a lot of people miss is that, you know, when we think about the Koch brothers and we're down to one brother now, mm-hmm. you know, we, we know that, that they, they are hostile to regulation that you know that they want to see uh business get the freest hand possible but we tend to miss the fact that their top priority is actually getting rid of public education and that's because public education represents so many of the things that these folks don't like our taxes pay for it it's a huge social safety net program right You get to attend public schools even if you weren't born in this country, even if you don't have legal status. And finally, and most importantly, public schools are really where kids' expectations are set. Teachers, and you know this so well because you were a teacher, your job is to get them to think bigger and aim higher. Well, if your view of the world is that we need the country to be less equal, that we need people to have fewer rights, that we need to be less of a democracy. You don't want kids to aim higher. You don't want them thinking that they're entitled to more. You actually wanna see their horizons shrink. And I know that's such a grim vision, but I think what people are experiencing right now is that, yeah, actually it is a grim vision.
1: So in Missouri, there are Republicans in my state house who are constantly attacking public education who are who have been defunding it for over a decade, who purposely pay teachers 50th in the nation. And you know we're 49th in educational funding. And what you described strikes me, but at the same time, Jennifer, do you think the people in my state house are understand that history and and where it comes from and when when they say why they are defunding schools they don't have any of what you were just talking about so i wonder we're seeing this in red states across the country is this um state lawmakers just uh, taking donor money and doing what they're told or do they understand what they are actually doing in your opinion
3: That's such a good question, because I think it's important to acknowledge that there, you know, this is a big tent right now, there are a lot of people in it. So you've got people on the extreme end, in almost all of these dates, you can find somebody who's filing a bill to make, to, to say that public education will no longer be compulsory. You won't have to attend anymore. Like think about that. That is a far out vision of the world. So that reflects sort of one viewpoint. Then you have your anti-tax folks. And you have a lot of them in Missouri. You have very wealthy and powerful people in Missouri who wanna basically phase out taxes. So a lot of the folks that you're hearing in the state house just represent that point of view. Now, these days, you've got a lot of folks who are in sort of the culture war wing and they have, you know, become convinced. Some of them, you know, some of them, it's uh, it's it's just cynical, um, but there are some true believers out there who really believe that, that kids are being indoctrinated and that the way that we can measure that is the fact that they are turning against Republicans they look at something like the number of young people who voted for bernie for example they look at the way that young people voted in the midterms and to them this is you know where is this coming from it's not coming from the from their families it's got to be coming from somewhere else it's coming from the schools now i think what's really interesting is that not so long ago 10 years ago 20 years ago A lot of these same folks would have been marching in lockstep behind the idea that the role of public schools in a place like Missouri was to produce good workers for business. And so it would have been your local businesses and, and corporations that were calling the shots about what happens in schools. Well, now they've really swung in a different direction. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see in all of these states, at what point does the business community start to wake up and say, oh, wait a second, what about us?
1: Exactly. Um, I just finished your book, uh, The Wolf at the at the Schoolhouse Door, and I absolutely enjoyed every bit of it. Um, I listened to it on audiobook because I'm lazy these days, but it was fantastic. And you talked about uh, a big chunk of it. Really, you talked about the rise of big money groups trying to privatize public schools. So I
3: see so often people who see the kinds of laws that are being passed or being debated and that their go-to explanation of what's happening is that, oh, this is just driven by corporate greed. These are people who want to cash in on the public schools and they're just, you know, they're mad about the fact that it's, you know, it's public money that they, they can't get. There is definitely some truth to this. If you think about the big voucher programs, That are being passed and I know this is something that's being debated in Missouri. So you know there is you know the vision is clearly to make money at every step of the way and so you know instead of a publicly funded quote-unquote government school perhaps kids in rural Missouri would attend a for-profit micro school right that someone there is cashing in because instead of a trained teacher your kids are being looked after by a guide who who earns not much more than the minimum wage. They're paid per head um, based on the number of kids who sign up and the kids themselves learn online. There's no training needed. There's some basic safety protocols. So you think about like, well, there's quite a bit of money um, or the voucher programs typically don't pay the full freight of the private schools. So there's an opening for a new loan market. And all along the way, you'll see that that there's some opportunity to cash in, even in an area that's relatively hard to make money off of because kids are expensive to educate. But the single biggest windfall comes from not having to pay taxes. It's to have you pay for it yourself, just the way that you are now expected to pay for your kid's college.
0: Support this show and all of the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 per month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels. Heartlandpod.com, click the Patreon link, or just go to Patreon and search for the Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. And now, back to the show.
1: That is so scary. I don't know if people have thought about the fact that there is maybe a market coming up for K-12 through 12, um, loans. Uh, and that's truly terrifying. Have you seen schools accepting state vouchers that outright discriminate against children, uh, children's parents, uh, kids with learning disabilities, social-emotional issues? Have you seen that?
3: Absolutely. So this summer, uh, a Christian school in Florida sent around a letter to parents and said, too bad, so sad. If your kid is LGBTQ, they're not welcome here anymore, because that conflicts with our religious values. And this is a school that accepts $1.6 million a year in taxpayer money through Florida's ginormous voucher program. And what's so, you know, what's so amazing, and I think, frankly, shocking to a lot of us is how open these schools are. And so the next time, you know, it's we've just passed through school choice week. And so they had endless public events at these private schools. And you could just go to the school website, click on their handbook, and the school would tell you in no uncertain terms, you know, we reserve the right to reject students who don't accept our worldview. Um, Here are the special needs that we do not accommodate. And I think what, you know, people have grown so used to this rhetoric about funding students, not systems, that they forget that, you know, government schools, you know, part of the government part is that's what the rights are attached to. Your constitutional rights, your kids' civil rights are attached to that public institution. And once you start shifting them into a private system, they do not have the same rights. And really, you know, the ability to make the choice about who to accept and who to reject falls, you know, within the power of the school.
1: I see that a lot. And, you know, I'm in a rural area, I'm, I'm in a town of 480 people. My daughter is in a class where the entire fifth grade is 17 kids. And people say to me all the time, well, a voucher would work perfect for you because then you could take your daughter wherever you wanted. But they don't understand that the closest high school is 60 miles from me, the closest one that you know would accept a voucher that is private and religious. So in Missouri, we're passing something called open enrollment, which will absolutely decimate these small schools. Um, because, you know, people will probably and I didn't think about this. My husband is a football coach and i was like well will people really pull their kids out you know to go to say maryville for academics and he said yes half the people it's not going to be about academics it's going to be about football Spoofhounds. they win state championships you know people are going to be pulling their kids out for that but as a teacher um, i was a member of mnea and i was the only person in my building that that was represented by the union so in rural parts of of every state, I would imagine. I was covered under um, MSTA, which is a it's almost like a teacher's club. They didn't, you know, uh, organize, they didn't bargain for benefits or pay. Um, But what is, what do you think the role is of the teachers union in privatizing public schools? And also, is that a part of privatizing public schools, trying to relieve schools of teacher unions?
3: Oh, absolutely. So there, like, there is nothing that these folks dislike more than teachers unions. Um, But we're, you know, we're so used to the kind of Obama era rhetoric about, you know, that, like, if we could just get better teachers into the kid in front of the kids, if we could just weed out the bad apples, this was going to be the thing that closed the achievement gap, and and allowed us to soar internationally. This was going to be so great. So We're used to hearing the teachers union really villainized as an op, as an obstacle to academic progress. That is not what we're talking about here. Uh, conservatives and conservative libertarians in particular are they, the reason that they dislike teachers unions so much is that teachers unions are the primary vehicle for advocating for a stronger social safety net. They advocate for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with schools, uh, including higher minimum wages and more generous health care. And so if you could knock them out, it makes it much easier to either you know, get rid of social programs that cost money or to you know, ensure that they don't come into being in the first place and so something like expanding medicaid like technically that's out of the purview of teachers unions except that it benefits kids and so you'll often find them right there lobbying using their numbers because they're typically the largest organized force so yes you are absolutely right that that this is this is a big part part of why they're such a target even if the rhetoric around why they're hated shifts from decade to decade.
1: Right, and so this is happening, the voucher schemes, the going after teachers unions, the um, calling the teachers all kinds of names, indoctrinators, having litter boxes, groomers, all these things are happening all around me, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and these are all red states. So is it just a red state phenomena, or is it is it spreading?
3: Oh, it's it's not uh, just a red state phenomenon, and I can't tell you how frustrating it is when I hear people who you know live in Massachusetts telling me, you know, like, well, we're so fortunate, we're so lucky that you know, like, we're not having to deal with this. But you know, the same, uh, you're you're seeing the the same kinds of lawsuits, for example, um, uh, that target that target transgender kids and the parents of transgender kids popping up in Massachusetts. I think what makes the blue state situation a little bit different is that the, the targets of the culture war are often affluent parents whose, you know, fondest dream is that their kids will attend Ivy League institutions. And so they are focusing enormous amounts of energy, time and money to make sure that that, you know, their youngster gets everything they need to win the kind of meritocratic race. And so you will hear them being uh, targeted by Republicans in particular, that, you know, like you should be opposed to school district equity plans, because this, you know, this is a war on merit. So it is like we hear different arguments being made, but definitely like the the same kinds of bills are being introduced, they just don't tend to go anywhere. Um, But but we're absolutely seeing it here, too.
1: So we're getting close to the end of this segment. But at the end of your book you were very um, poignant and you pointed out the fact that you know is it hopeless because i i feel sometimes because i am constantly looking at legislation that will hurt everyone around me i don't see things coming through to fix our roads you know to pay the teachers more to make sure that our post office and our hospitals stay open um so i wonder one what can we do and lastly a bit of hope. Is there hope in this?
3: So let's start with the bleak part. I think there are real reasons to be concerned right now that we're seeing things that we've really never seen. I worry about the extent to which our public schools can survive this level of political polarization, that this election season, you really did see rural Republicans turn against their own schools in a way that we haven't seen before. That really worries me. Okay, for the moment of hope. It's so important to remember just how unpopular a lot of this stuff is with the general public that there were, you know, there were candidates who ran across the country and went all in on school privatization and culture war stuff and they lost. They made it the center of their campaign in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and these are in the heartland too right? And so that gives me hope. And then, you know, when every, the more extreme these guys get and the more extreme the proposals get, well, the more they're peeling off supporters, people who may maybe they went along with the critical race theory, witch hunt, but, you know, litter boxes are a step too far. And so, you know, we have to be mindful that our biggest, uh, the thing that's most important for us to do right now is to keep building our coalition, there are people who are waking up right now that maybe never saw themselves as having to defend public education. And now they're asking, what can I do? How can I help before it's too late? So we have an immense organizing challenge before us, but I do see some hopeful signs that people are waking up. And a lot of it is due to the work of people like you, Jessica Piper.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate you. And thank you for leaving us that bit of hope at the end because it, it is demoralizing. It is a fight. It's every day. Wake up and start again. And I'm so thankful for you. A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door was absolutely what I needed to read at this moment. I listen to your podcast, Have You Heard, every single week. Um, and the banter between you and Jack is fantastic. Um, like I told you, you can let Jack know that I thought you just wrote that entire book because the narrator was Email and I absolutely <laughs> adored it. I know he gives you lots of trouble every single week.
3: <laughs> yes. He does I, I let him know that immediately.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me and I hope to talk to you soon.
0: The Heartland Pod is a production of MidMap Media LLC. Follow us on Twitter with at the Heartland Pod. With email, you can reach us HeartlandPod2020 at gmail.com. Online with HeartlandPod.com. Subscribe. And please sign up for our Patreon with patreon.com slash heartlandpod. Become a podhead or an official podgressive today and unlock all of our content. See you at the next show.